0: This is Van Color. Van Color. Welcome back to This Is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and our featured guest today is a familiar voice from when This Is Van Color was just a little podcast. In fact, out of all the premiers, party leaders, media icons, entertainers, she was one of your favorite guests, and I am so excited to welcome her back on the show. She might not admit it, but I consider her my friend. She is the twice elected BC NDP MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale. She is BC's Minister of State for Infrastructure. She is Minister Bowen Ma Bowen.
1: Hi, Mo. Hi.
0: Always nice to see you.
1: So nice to see you. Good to be back, or at least seeing you in real life these days. Right?
0: I know. (laughs) What a terrible year, though.
1: It has been a very challenging year for British Columbians and Mm -hmm. I mean around the world, of course, but but here in British Columbia in particular, I would say.
0: But the Coquihalla Highway just recently reopened. And this is incredible because six weeks ago after about six weeks ago, I should say, after the atmospheric river events that took out 20 sections of this highway, collapsed bridges, there was mudslides everywhere, somehow this highway is operational again. So how, how did it happen? How did you do it, Bowen? Well, it certainly wasn't me, it was the crews. It
1: really came down to the crews. And Mo, it was 31 days pretty much exactly that it took. Hmm. These crews, the engineers, um, the ministry staff, everyone who worked so hard, they basically just grounded out for 31 days, around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we really saw the road building community and the heavy contracting community step it up for us, mm-hmm. and we're incredibly grateful. Like, I remember when the storms first hit. Shortly afterwards, our maintenance contractors were already on the horn, uh, trying to trying to find every piece of heavy equipment that was available to them and pulling it all on site. Wow! At its peak. There were over two hundred and fifty pieces of heavy equipment working around the clock on that one hundred and thirty kilometer stretch alone. Hmm. And the crews worked through horrendous conditions, through through sleet, through ice, through snowstorms. Huh. And we're it, we couldn't have done it without them.
0: It's almost as if when there's political will, government can really move mountains.
1: Well, we were in a state of emergency and people knew that. Mm -hmm. And like what we saw come out of the woodwork was uh, a prioritization of the Coquihalla by the heavy contracting community that Hmm. we had never seen before because it wasn't needed before. Right. So we had contractors and uh, construction companies that called us up at the ministry, basically saying, hey, you know what, we've got a temporary bridge sitting in our storage. We were getting it ready for another job, but we think that you probably needed a heck of a lot more than we do right now. It's yours if you want it. Wow, That helped us out immensely, and this happened all over the province. We also had a a few other things go on for us. For instance, Cuit was actually working out there along the Coca-Cola, um, not at the coca but outside of the coca because they were working on the pipeline. Oh, okay. and so they already had a ton of heavy equipment out there, and they were able to move their equipment through their access roads right up to the Coca-Cola. Hmm. And that allowed for us to work on multiple sections of the road at the same time. Because otherwise, because the Coca-Cola had been broken up in so many different pieces, there would have been segments of the Hala that were absolutely cut off from mm-hmm. access because you know they were surrounded by yeah. other bridges that were down and so having crews um having queue it Pull their crews from their jobs and move them over to to the Kauai was immensely helpful. As Almost well. like an
0: engineering symphony, right? Where you have all these moving parts and
1: I, you know <laughs> what, that is a great way to describe it because the partnership, the level of partnership and collaboration, yeah, was just out of this world. I would say second to none um, from from anything that I've experienced and anything I suspect that the province has experienced in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have to acknowledge that crews did certain things that we would not normally expect to happen if we were not in a state of emergency okay for instance uh, paving through snowstorms <laughs> <Yeah. Okay? laughs> normally you wouldn't want to do asphalt <clears throat> paving in temperatures below five to 10 degrees Celsius because you've got a you've got to keep the asphalt a certain temperature it's got to cool down at a certain rate uh, because we did do this though, uh, I would expect that uh, come the summer, we're probably going to have to redo some of the paving. Sure. It's going to result in a in a more brittle, uh, uh, brittle pavement that is uh, prone to cracking, potholes. We'll be monitoring the situation. Right, um, but the fact but that
0: yeah. you got it up and running and operational is incredible. It's phenomenal.
1: Absolutely. So
0: my next question is: It's open to commercial traffic yes. for now. When can the public expect it to be open to all traffic, non-essential traffic?
1: So commercial traffic and buses for now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the long and the short of the reason why is because we have to prioritize commercial movements and the movement of essential goods and services. Sure. We'll monitor it for the next couple of weeks. It's entirely possible that we will open the coca to other forms of traffic, but we've got to see how it performs for now because it's it's not. Any a idea
0: full of uh, even a ballpark timeline?
1: We're going to have to see how it goes. Fair
0: enough. (laughs) When we look at this atmospheric river event in its totality across the province, Mm -hmm. do we have any idea of the full extent of damage and what this will end up costing to repair?
1: Yeah, you know, shortly after the storm event, I remember listing off. The highways that were closed uh, to somebody so that they knew where they could or could not travel and the list just went on and on i was like we have major highway closures along highway 1 3 4 5 7 8, 11, 93, 99. Like it was really quite substantial yeah. and widespread. And that meant a lot of communities cut off from, yeah. from other communities and from what they needed on a day to day basis. Um, and it wasn't just transportation infrastructure, of course. People lost their homes, their livelihoods, mm-hmm. farms. We saw agricultural labs get flooded. We lost schools. We lost community um, community infrastructure buildings, and of course, the diking system was also compromised. Mm -hmm. Very widespread. Um, But when it comes to transportation infrastructure, I mean, there's a lot of reason why good reason why the Coquihalla has been top of mind for everybody. It's an incredibly important. Transportation corridor, extremely important from a goods movement perspective for sure. the entire country, not just British Columbia. But where the worst damage was to our highways, it was actually along Highway 8. Okay. Highway 8 is a um, a lesser used, lesser known highway. It's a secondary highway that connects Merritt to Spences Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, limited commercial activity, but very important to the small communities. That lie along the Nicola River, um, in particular First Nations, many First Nations communities along there as well. So, very mm. important. And while the coca was damaged in 20 spots along about 130 kilometers, Highway 8 was also damaged along 20 spots, but the whole highway is only 70 kilometers long. Wow. The phrase, pardon me, the Nicola River moved and changed shape in those two days what we would normally expect to take decades or even hundreds of years to Hmm. take. So we're talking major damage. There are segments of Highway 8 where it looks like there was never a highway to begin with.
0: Really? Huh.
1: So the conversation about what we do about a highway that's so important like Highway 8 but is in such a vulnerable position is extremely important. Yeah. We haven't Uh, we haven't worked it out yet. It's an active conversation. And that's why it's just way too early for us to know how much all of this is going to cost.
0: Wow, incredible. I guess it's not realistic to expect that all infrastructure can be upgraded all at once, and certainly not upgraded in preparation for similar climate change events. However, I'm just curious, is it possible to even be proactive at all in any spots? Because we don't know where a mudslide is going to happen, even if we do have heavy rains. Are we kind of stuck in a place where we're just going to have to be reactive when it comes to our infrastructure?
1: I think it is possible to be proactive. And actually, even from the Ministry of Transportation's perspective, we've seen the ministry become much better at being proactive, even just in the last few weeks. Uh, after the initial atmospheric river event, there was uh, we anticipated another series of atmospheric rivers. And prior mm-hmm. to that, we actually did proactively close down some segments of highways that uh, were deemed to be vulnerable. And landslides did happen in those closed down segments. And so right. that proactive approach did work. But you're right that, I mean, some of this infrastructure is, it's been there a while. Yeah. Right? The Kokuhala, was opened when pretty much around the time you and I were born. Mm-hmm. Uh, Highway 8 was built back in the 1950s. Uh, there is nobody on this earth that can snap their fingers and suddenly update all of these highways exactly, yeah. to the condition we need like going forward right away. But we have to try to figure something out. And this is the kind of work that our government has already been discussing for well before... These flood events have happened. Mm
0: -hmm. Discussions
1: about climate adaptation, mitigation, uh, building our infrastructure to withstand what is likely going to become a more frequent uh, series of extreme climate events. Those conversations absolutely are happening. Uh, Design standards are already being updated. Uh, We're already updating what we believe, used to believe we knew about 50-year, 100-year, 200-year flood events and so forth. So that work is happening. Um, but yeah, we're going to be vulnerable in, in quite a few places. And there is some, I mean, there, there is anal- analysis that we can do to find those vulnerable spots. And we're getting better at it uh, all the time.
0: We are now in the podcast exclusive part of my chat with Minister Bowen Ma. Bowen, thanks for sticking around. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me for longer than you know you need to, really.
0: Well, oh, well, it's, it's my honor. Before we really get into it, weird timing, but I'm hearing this chatter lately from uh, some of my much more talented peers in media, and I don't know why this is coming up now, but we're going to rewind to a time where I didn't even know you personally, but I've heard that you were offered a cabinet position in your very first term as an MLA back in 2017, but you turned it down. Is this true?
1: Um, no, (laughs) (laughs) um, I, I, the, I think that information might be, uh, what, what can I say, Mo? Um, I am happily serving as Minister of State for Infrastructure
0: right now. Right now. But we're going back to your first term.
1: In my first term, I was offered uh, the position of Parliamentary Secretary for TransLink in 2017. Which you took. Which I did accept. Yeah. And it was absolutely an honor to. to So this
0: is so this is has no legs to it is what you're saying.
1: Um, I was not offered a ministerial position in 2017, no.
0: Okay, I've heard some whispers here and there, like recently about this. I'm not even sure why they're coming up. I've heard that you've even perhaps been asked or people have prodded around about this. Why do you think this is coming up now or recently?
1: Um, <laughs> I, I I don't know why why people would be talking about it um, right now. Um uh um it it may it may uh, um it, it may stem from i mean it it is okay it is true and sorry you can tell i i don't i haven't talked about this publicly um and you're putting me on the spot here um it is true uh, that I I was offered the honor of, of serving as a full minister, not not in 2017, but it was actually in early 2020.
0: Oh, okay. My it's mistake. early
1: 2020. And um, it was, uh, I mean, you know what? The opportunity to serve as, as a minister is a, an incredible honor. Mm-hmm. As, as I've said, I've been very pleased to be able to serve as Minister of State for Infrastructure over the last year. Um, I, and, and it is true that there, ha, there has been some, some prodding by, by maybe some of your media colleagues around um, around why it was that I, I did not accept at that time. And uh, I mean, and since it's come up now, I should and I don't want any speculation to, to go around about about you know why I, I did not accept at the time. Um, i'll t- I'll tell you uh, and sorry, this is obviously you can tell i'm <laughs> I'm a little bit surprised by the way that this has come up um when I decided to become an m l a it was an incredibly it was incredibly important to me that I did it for the right reasons, mm-hmm. and I decided to leave my career as an engineer to serve as an MLA so that I could serve British Columbians and in particular serve my community of of North Vancouver, Lonsdale. And what I had heard uh, consistently through my campaign in 2017 and throughout the first term was that that community members felt like it had been a long time since they had an MLA that actually worked for them mm. in North Vancouver. My predecessor was a BC Liberal MLA um, and and one of the things that, that people consistently told me was that she was never around. And I was absolutely determined uh, that for me and my work as an MLA that I would be there for them and they would be my priority and that I would catch up on a lot of the the kind of um, representation that, um, that they had been missing out for a long time. And so I really, really, uh, it was so important to me that I prioritize them. And I have seen how the role of, of minister can take MLAs away from their community. Um, it is an incredibly important role that they're mm-hmm. doing elsewhere for the entire province. Um, but it, it's simple math, right? I mean, I've got 24 hours in a day. I'm hoping that about eight of them are for sleeping and eating and showering and yeah. and so forth. So out of the remaining 16 hours, um, if, if you're adding a ministerial role um, on top of that, then yeah, it absolutely, um, it, it can take away from the time that you're in your community. And mm-hmm. at the time that I was offered this uh, amazing opportunity, um, I had serving as an MLA for only two and a half years and I I knew in my mind exactly what I needed to accomplish for my community before I before I was less available to them and so I was also um, confident that our caucus was filled with brilliant people who would do an amazing job even if I even if I didn't accept that particular offer Uh, whereas the North Shore only had one NDP MLA right. at the time, and that was me. So.
0: which portfolio was it?
1: Well, there was only one. Uh, w- there was only one position that that was uh, shuffled in. in okay, fair
0: which enough. Is,
1: um, Citizen Services, which mm-hmm. was very, very ably filled by by Minister Ann King.
0: Mm-hmm. So. We're talking about the same year. And so this was, I guess, where I am now filling in the gap that we're talking about 2020. And then you did enter cabinet in 2020 after the election. Yes. So what changed in your mind that made you accept the offer after the, the 2020 election?
1: Um, well, uh, for one, a lot of the issues that I was working on for my community actually did manage to, uh, to get into a place where I felt like we were on, a, on the right track and, and headed in the right direction on them. And so I felt comfortable that I had succeeded in, in pushing some of that across the line. Um, I was a far more experienced MLA at that point, um, the extra six months, especially during a pandemic, really helped me find my stride in understanding how best I could uh, support my community, even if I had, even if I was physically there a mm-hmm. little less. Especially since everything went to virtual anyway. Yeah, true. Um, but really, the game changer for me was the fact that Susie Chant was elected in North Vancouver Seymour, and we had mm. another NDP MLA on the North Shore that could um, help support. Uh, community members and really help carry some of the, the workload that fell on me when I was the only government member in the region.
0: Yeah. And I do have to say, if people are not aware, your community outreach is excellent in terms of the newsletters that you provide. They're so informative, especially throughout the pandemic, in terms of your visibility in the community, you're always out there. I mean, I've ran into you a bunch of times, usually at shipyards. <laughs> I'm having a good time, but you're out there, you know, meeting people in the community. Uh, it, it, you do a lot in the community. And, and I'm not just saying that because I do consider us friends. I'm just saying that because I live in North Van, in Susie's uh, uh, riding, but I, I live in North Van, and, and and you're out and about despite taking on this this cabinet role. And it is quite admirable that that you have such a commitment I think to North Van and it, it shows.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I I'm just so tickled to have Susie out there with me. Honestly, she has been a powerhouse and such a wonderful partner to work with. I mean, uh, I did work uh, on some issues with with the other North Shore MLAs, but they were uh, BC liberals. And so we weren't able to fully partner on a lot of things, whereas uh, Susie and I, I think we make a good team for the North Shore.
0: Cool. So this is the first time that we're doing an interview in person. You've been on the podcast twice before. Episodes 77 and 105, and I still think that episode 105 holds up. It was very personal, and I think you gave some very fascinating lived experience insights into being a a woman in politics, a racialized woman in politics. Uh, But wow, that last chat was a calendar year ago, and sometimes it feels like a lifetime ago. (laughs) That
1: was a whole year ago?
0: It, it, does that not feel like a year? It feels like that was so much longer than a year.
1: Wow. Um,
0: I mean, t- 2021, I think it's just 2021 was just such a tough year and a weird year. And we, we already went through this weird year of 2020. But to think that we had, the last time we sat down, like it just feels like so long ago. Way longer than a year.
1: Yeah, you know, I guess people kind of like filed... Difficult times differently in their heads. I have a tendency to, um, uh, <laughs> like, for me, I can barely remember anything about 2021. <laughs> I know that I that I worked really hard. I know that that um, my my community went through a lot. I know that we pulled together, um, but I I must be really eager to forget it all because <laughs> it just it feels like it just went by really quickly.
0: Yeah. What are the biggest lessons that either you personally took from 2021 or that you think as a community we can take from 2021? Because as we talked about, it was a tough year in a lot of different ways.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think one of the things that we really have to um, realize is that different people have different tolerances for... Um, for what this year has brought us. I have spoken to community members who are doing just fine, mm-hmm. and I have spoken to community members who are really, really struggling. Um, you know, I mean, people miss their families, yeah. um, especially if their families aren't in British Columbia. Um People are tired of the public health orders, even as they know that they're important and are committing to uh, to follow them. And it is so important that we have compassion for for people that ev- even when we disagree with them. Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. And it's hard to uh, muster that patience sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a conversation we've had on this show is, you know, what what do you do if Someone in your family, in your close family, is an anti-vaxxer or an anti-masker, or doesn't want to adhere to the the rules. It's like you; it's unrealistic to say, ah, you cut them out of your life. They're still part of your family, and these are challenges that that people have to have had to deal with. And you know, in a, in a chat with Mario Canseco, I think he brought up an interesting point that even though our anxiety levels have fluctuated, even when they're at their highest, it hasn't changed people's adherence in general to public health orders. People have suffered through COVID fatigue, but they've still been doing their best. And I think on the whole, you know, we can look at the extreme cases of protesting hospitals and whatever, but on the whole, I think British Columbians have just been doing their best out there.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that a lot of British Columbians, they, um, they want to, to do the right thing mm-hmm. you know they want to do what's right for their families for their communities they want to do what's right for for the province and the country as a whole um, and overwhelmingly they have been far more resilient than i think they've given themselves credit mm. for, you know and through all of this last year what I've also seen is how brilliantly communities can come together to support one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw that in the in the flood event, yeah. where um, even you know communities, literally like o- local governments, were offering up um, help for for other communities that were harder hit by the flood events than they were. Yeah. Um, we have seen um, organizations and faith groups and um, and cultural groups just. Completely kick butt at at you know rounding up donations and rounding up support for a flood for vic- the victims of the flood and the bc storm and we have seen people just continue to reach out and and take care of each other even when it's been challenging and that's been you know that's That's probably the – maybe there aren't that many great things about 2021, but that has been really remarkable to to witness.
0: Yeah, and I'm really happy that you bring that up because I think that might be one of my – biggest lessons in terms of a community aspect is that when things get difficult, you see communities banding together. We don't atomize and, and, and go to war with each other. You know, you do of course have a very small minority that, that, that sort of resists and, and fight things. But honestly, people come together when times get tough. And those examples you gave are are great examples. You know, people were really helping each other out. And I think, Again, I think a majority of British Columbians through this pandemic, even within their own circles, were checking up on each other. Yes. I know that I was checking up on people in my circles and people in my circles were checking up on me. You know, not that any red flags had been thrown up or anything, but we were all just seeing how we're doing. Do Absolutely. we need anything? And and that... Through a very tough year, um, yeah, you call it a silver lining or or something to, to fasten your your faith or hope on, it, it's pretty remarkable, I think. Absolutely. I have to be honest, and this is not a secret, okay. I have expressed this opinion on the radio, particularly on CBC's On the Coast with Gloria Makarenko. I've written about this in Vancouver's Awesome on Specific issues in particular. When the BC NDP won majority government, there was a lot of enthusiasm amongst progressives. Like, wow, we have this unfettered social democratic government we're going to get all the things we're going to get the child care and the progressive drug policy and some great environmental policy and 10 days paid sick leave and and you know what some of it has been done it's I'm not undermining the government in this regard there has been a lot of work that has been accomplished in the first year of the majority government but I think for a lot of progressives it feels underwhelming
1: mm-hmm.
0: And I don't want to get into specific issues. We're talking about what would you say to a supporter, a voter, a progressive, just a British Columbian who might express disappointment with your government on certain files?
1: You know, I was actually thinking about this the other day and I was reflecting on. Are you
0: getting a lot of this?
1: Um no, uh, you know, I mean, you know what? I'm a new Democrat, and the BC NDP and the federal NDP. We are a party of people who want everything in the world for for our neighbors and our communities. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're we're built on on um, just pushing so hard to get as much done as possible in order to in order to make life better for people mm-hmm. And so I think that it's fair to say that uh, we are often our own worst critics. We look at ourselves and we're thinking yeah we did all of these things but what about that one thing that we haven't done yet? I really wish we could do that even though we know <laughs> even though when you reflect on it it's like wow we you know we've done a lot over that time. And I was uh, reflecting on on some of the things that I wished that we had uh, were further ahead on, mm-hmm. um, and or or that we had done even more of. And of course, there's lots of reasons, right? Where um, there's real capacity issues in 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 government, where you know you can't do everything at the flick of a switch. There are processes to go through and so forth. But. As I was reflecting on all of this, I also started to recall what it was like before our government formed in 2017 and what the political atmosphere was when we were governed under the BC Liberals. And the one piece that I really started to realize was that the fact that we were even talking about issues as British Columbians, like what issues we agreed or disagreed with or what uh, policy work the government should be doing or not doing or so forth. The fact that we even have the space to have those conversations is totally different from what it was like before the BCNTP came into power. Because back then under the BC Liberals, all anyone ever talked about were the scandals. It was all about who was paying who off or who was um, what kind of (laughs) deals were being cut and in, you know, uh, to help whatever big donor friend of the liberals and so forth. Like it was just scandal after scandal after scandal. We couldn't even talk about, you know, should we have five days paid sick leave for every employee in British Columbia? And a big part of the reason why I believe that the the conversation has changed is not only the the difference in, in our governments and and um, who we we pride ourselves on working for, um, it was also the it was also because we banned big money from politics. It completely changed the political field. It completely changed um, who politicians had to. Uh, go to for money i mean i remember when i was running back in 2017 the amount of money that i felt pressured to raise for successful election was absolutely staggering (laughs) staggering and the amount of time that i spent fundraising and the amount of time that i spent reaching out to people with money is um like i i I couldn't stomach it then, and I am so glad that I don't have to stomach it now because we don't have that anymore.
0: I will say politicians are a lot less annoying when it comes to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. See, isn't it <laughs> that good? But, but okay, and, and I understand what you're saying, and I think those are all fair points. Again, the the reforms that you're talking about, I mean, that was a lot of that was from the first term, and I've openly said that I thought that that first term in government was certainly one of the best governments I've ever experienced. I mean, maybe I'm younger, but you know, most seniors would say the same thing, that he, he really admired and uh, was happy about how that government performed. I guess what I'm getting at is, fair enough, we're only the first year into this term, and there's been a lot on the table in terms of, the pandemic and some of these climate change events. But at some point, we're going to get to a place where British Columbians are going to say, OK, what have we done on the housing file? What have we done on, um, you know, the opioids file? And again, I, I don't want to get into s- debates on specific files because that's not fair. Those are not your files. But I'm just saying, like, are, are you telling people to just wait it out or what? Like... Because there are disappointed progressives and there are disappointed people that, that even if it's a little thing like paid sick leave or if it's a larger thing like the, the price of homes, they're going, hey, what, what's going on? Why, why aren't we doing all the, the cool social democratic stuff that, that we thought you were going to do in a majority government?
1: I mean, you are right that the province has faced a lot of emergencies. Uh in 2021 alone, we have had two public health emergencies and five provincial states of emergency. Uh, sorry, pardon me, three provincial states of emergency. So that's five emergencies that w- that province has had to contend with in one single calendar year. And while we are working, we continue to work on a lot of the other issues that people care about, and we are making lots of progress. I mean, we're um, well on our way to delivering on our promise uh, in, in partnership with the federal government to reduce child care fees by 50% by the end of next year. Um, we you know, made public transit free for kids 12 and under and so forth and so on and so on. Um, but It would be, I think it would be naive of us to say that a government could deal with five different states of emergencies in one year and not have that impact, um, uh, impact other priorities.
0: So how overwhelming was this year? I mean, we're talking about pandemic, we're talking about heat dome, forest fires, the, the climate change events, I mean, the atmospheric river events in particular. Like, give me a ground level view of was it just chaos in terms of what are we doing? Were you always in emergency mode? What what is that like when in governance? Because you've clearly been a non. You know, emergency yeah. years or non multiple emergency years, and then you have been... we
1: because it, it doesn't feel like that anymore. It feels like it, we're, we've been in a constant state of emergency forever. <laughs> I, I, I hardly imagine, I can hardly remember what it was like before we were in these multiple states of emergency. But <laughs> I mean, it it is, uh, there's a lot going on for sure. I mean, when we have a pandemic. That we're battling, and the entire healthcare system is stretched in order to, in order to address the the impacts of that pandemic, um, and it there are a lot of reforms in healthcare that we were hoping to get through, that we're still working on, mm-hmm. but that we have to respect the fact that the people that um, that we relied on for that. Are also really exhausted from trying to get us through this pandemic as yeah. well i mean we have a fantastic public service they don't get enough kudos honestly they work um i mean especially during these emergent states of emergencies the the service has been working around the clock and moving way faster than people ever thought that governments could move. Yeah. Um, we saw that in the beginning of the pandemic. It continues to happen now. We saw that uh, through the flood recoveries and, and recovery from the storm events. Um, it, is, it is challenging. I mean, if you look at the, kind, the um, number of emergency cabinet working groups that have uh, been formed in just the last year alone, there's one on the pandemic there's one on disaster recovery because of the storms and the floods. There's one on um, recovery from the wildfires because of what happened to Lytton over the summer. Mm-hmm. We're still dealing with that and still working with uh, Lytton on rebuilding. And while all of this is happening, we're still making progress on a lot of other important files, of which some of, uh, some of which we've talked about today and, and some of which we'll continue to work on. I think suffice to say we know that there's a lot to do. And we acknowledge that um, that people have really high expectations for our government. And yeah. every single day, every member of my team, I see them. I see my colleagues. They are working. Um, I, I, they are working to do the best that they can to deliver for British Columbians.
0: So as my friend, you're not mad at me when I criticize the BCNDP on the radio? <laughs> um,
1: I, I, like I said, um, the most ardent supporters of the BCNDP are actually often our biggest critics <laughs> because the expectations are so high. And we all got into this work because we wanted to good, do good by people.
0: I'm going to take that as a free license now. If someone, if someone comes back to me, hey, Mo, you're gonna, you are being unfair. I'm going to take it up with Bowen. Bowen said... Be harsh. Be be the worst critic. <laughs> um, I, I do want to touch on, uh, on something you're talking about in, in terms of, you know, there, there still being a lot to do. Has anything, and it, it can be in your ministerial file or it can be just in general, has anything, like, kept you up at night? Maybe not literally, but in terms of something that you go, okay, we have three years to fix the system or to implement some new framework to address I don't know, a certain vulnerability in the governmental mm-hmm. system or governmental response. Is there anything that that, you're, that you really want to see done in the next three years from your government?
1: What keeps me up at night, and it has kept me up at night over the last many years, and it was one of the primary reasons that drove me to, to enter politics to begin with, is um, the climate emergency. Um, I know that global climate change isn't something that can be solved just by British Columbia alone. Mm-hmm. It, it requires all of Canada, the the entire globe, really. All of us need to be pulling together. Um, but that doesn't mean that British Columbia shouldn't be doing its share of uh, t- doing its share when it comes to driving down greenhouse gas emissions. And so that work that Minister Heyman is doing, the Minister of um, Environment and Climate Change, is doing around the Clean BC Roadmap to 2030 is so incredibly important. I actually think it's one of the most important um, programs that our government is is working on delivering right now because it's not, not only is it about... Um, uh, the survival of our generation—it's about the survival of every generation that comes after us. Um, yeah, the climate emergency is is really where where my head um, is at, and I mean, a lot of the emergencies that we're dealing with now can be traced down, traced back to the climate emergency as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it does not escape me that while we are working on. On re-establishing these critical transportation routes and supply chain um, supply chain corridors, uh, that the transportation sector is also the largest emitter as a sector of greenhouse gases here in British Columbia. Fully forty percent or more of all greenhouse gas emissions that British Columbia counts and is responsible for comes from transportation. Wow! And so, yes, we have to. Be um, you know we we have to repair the coca and yes we have to keep these supply chains going and and absolutely um, the the movement of people of goods is and goods is incredibly important but at the same time we also need to be figuring out how we change that as we go forward because we can't keep doing what we've been doing over the last many decades. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of like immediate <clears throat> climate resiliency work that we've got to do, but we've also got to be actively changing the way that we move goods, services, and people around.
0: You know, that down the line, I'm going to bring this up again, like in three years or whatever it is, whatever capacity I have. No, I said, have Bowen, note. Bowen, um, you said this, what did you do in the last three years? No, I appreciate that answer. And I know that that's top of mind for, for many British Columbians. I feel like I've been grilling you this this interview a little yeah, more than usual. <laughs>
1: usually, we're though? just we're just
0: palling out, but uh, <laughs> let's let okay, it'll change things up. We'll we'll change things up. I know you've been busy, you know, emergencies, governing, uh, but have you been following the BC Liberal leadership race at all?
1: Oh boy, um, <laughs> almost all of my attention has been on the. the the work of governing that we've had to do. So I've not been following the BC liber- Liberal leadership race quite. Um, I'll yeah. So sorry, I'm getting kind of tongue-tied here. But no, I haven't really been following it closely. Do you know who's um, running? I kind of know who's running. It's kind of been boring to me, honestly. <laughs> Mo. Um, I haven't found it all that interesting. Although I will say, yeah. the one candidate that I do find interesting is also a candidate that I cannot follow on Twitter because he blocked me. Who? Years ago, Ellis Ross. He blocked you? I don't know why oh. either. You know what? I, I remember a few years ago, I went to search his profile Yeah. and found he already blocked me. And I had never, literally never interacted with him on Twitter before that. And any interaction in person, I've actually been quite complimentary. Of him because I like he's I don't necessarily agree with his mm-hmm. views but he expresses himself in such a compelling way and I feel like I learn a lot about um, the where he's coming from in his speeches but yeah I find him actually really interesting but he's had me blocked on Twitter wow. since God knows when I have no idea <laughs> I don't know what I did
0: that's really funny I'm really disappointed I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna drop his team a note about that I that's my pick. That's who I th- that's not an endorsement I want to be clear that's who I think will win. I think yeah. Ellis Ross will win yes i I I would genuinely be surprised if Kevin Falcon wins. I know everyone's saying really? he's the front runner. Yeah, I don't see it.
1: Wow, everyone that I know who does follow the BC liberal leadership race always tells me it's going to be Kevin Falcon. So that's very interesting.
0: yeah, I don't know. I feel like the people who say it's going to be Kevin Falcon are like working for Kevin Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I'm just like, okay, like everyone that's saying he has such great momentum are like people on the take. So I, I just don't, I don't know. I, I, how can you make a case for, and I'm, yeah, I've been hammering on this guy all year, but how can you make a case for change and renewal and bring back someone from 10 years ago? Like it just doesn't make any sense. So either, you know, I think he's going to have a strong showing on the first ballot. But I think that, similar to the last race, um, and and maybe the experience that Diane Watts went through, I think people are going to coalesce around mm-hmm. another candidate. Interesting. So it's either first ballot for Falcon, which I don't think he'll be able to accomplish, or it's it's going to be someone else, and I think that's going to be Alice. I I don't. There are some interesting candidates. Yeah. I I um. I personally like. You know, Renee Merrifield as a person. I, I don't think that's someone that should be underestimated. I don't know what her ground game in terms of campaigning looks like. Um, so it's hard for me to comment. Uh, I think Gavin Dew has some interesting ideas.
1: I went to school with Gavin Dew. Did you? Oh, yeah.
0: Are you guys friendly? Or are you? Yeah, ri- is, there a, is there a rivalry, a friendly no, rivalry? I don't think so. No?
1: I mean, I've, yeah, no, I knew him back in university. He was a nice guy. Yeah, we get politics. along
0: and um, I enjoy chatting with him. Uh, you know, Stan Sipos, Hall of Fame drag racer. Maybe he will be the dark horse I in this race. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Neither does anyone else apparently. Okay.
1: I You know, you know Ellis Ross has a TikTok, um a, a TikTok account?
0: I don't think he's making those TikToks though.
1: Uh, they, I think he's
0: got a team that's they
1: making They are those. TikToks of him. I saw one so because he hasn't blocked me on TikTok. Okay. Um and one of the videos was of him looking into the camera um, basically saying, uh, is this it? Is that the button? What does this do? <laughs> like some, something along
0: those lines. Oh, maybe he does. Okay. Yeah. Um, so maybe he does make a up. The there,
1: was, there was also one video where I, um, he posted it. And then I guess in the comments said something along the lines of like, I don't understand where this music came from. How do I take it off?
0: Wow. So,
1: but you know what? It's, <laughs> I think it's very genuine. It's real. So it is
0: real. I was thinking of, he has some very flashy Instagram posts. Oh, and so that's what okay. I was thinking. I was like, he's not making these. Someone else is making yeah, them no, for him. But I haven't seen one on TikTok, so that's not I'll TikTok have to check good. it out. <laughs> I, you know, people often criticize me as a, as a partisan, but, but I think I'm more of an ideologue or just ideological. <laughs> I want the BC liberals to do well. And I know maybe you don't because, you know, fair enough. But I want a strong opposition party. I want the B.C. Greens to be very strong. I do think they are for the two person caucus that they have. I think they're an incredible caucus. Uh, But I want this party to be strong. I want British Columbians to have options in terms of not just who they vote for, but ideas. Right. And. You know, people say, oh, you're always, they say to me, oh, you're too hard on them. But it's like, no, I want them to have the best possible leader and the best possible caucus. And and I want them to hold you guys to account, especially because you're in a majority.
1: I, you know what, as a, as a, a politician that is aligned with a political party, of course, it makes our life easier when the opposition is not strong, but. I completely agree with you uh, from the perspective of, like, the value to democracy. <laughs> Having multiple strong political parties is absolutely better for, from a democratic perspective. It's better for British Columbians to... Um, to have um, ideas thoroughly debated out and challenged and so forth. And, and potentially, and I believe very strongly, because I supported the proportional representation campaign, that um, opportunities for cross-partisan um, collaboration are also extremely important. I mean, that may, it's a bit difficult, given our first-past-the-post system, to yeah. really incentivize that kind of behavior, um, again, why I strongly supported proportional representation, but understand that it did not pass. And I, <laughs> I accept that. I'm not bitter about it at all. Don't, don't worry. Um, but I totally understand where you're coming from. Like, it's, um, it's important for us to have good quality candidates, good quality mm-hmm. um, political parties, regardless of um, whether you agree with them or not.
0: Yeah. A theme that ran through the first two interviews, podcasts that we did was how uh, BC liberals seem very fond of uh, coming after you, and sometimes very unfairly. And of course, we saw this materialize in the big election incident uh, with Jane Thornthwaite. Do you th- I think they've learned their lesson. I haven't seen any attacks against Bowen Ma. I feel like they know that that is the, the kiss of death, that if they throw something at you, you are rubber. It is gonna bounce back and bite them even harder.
1: Um, I have definitely noticed a difference, for sure. <laughs> Um, I don't know what you did, Mo. Like, but yeah. Um,
0: I just pointed it out. I think I just pointed out the reality of the situation.
1: Yeah, I. There has definitely been a stark contrast in in the way that the BC Liberals um, engaged with me uh, prior to this year. I would say,
0: and, and not. Just specific to you, but I think some of this has to be the leadership of Shirley Bond, right? Like, I just think I, the BC Liberals in general, and, and there's been many things that I've actually agreed, uh, I've agreed with Shirley Bond on in terms of some of her criticisms. And I just found that their calm strategy in a lot of ways has improved. I mean – there are issues that I that I still have with them of course but I, but I just feel like the the tenor that they've taken this year has been a lot different.
1: You know what? I I agree with you on that as well. I actually wrote a card and I wrote a note to Shirley Bond before the um before the end of the last session because that Uh, was going to be the last session that she would uh, serve as the interim leader of the BC Liberals. Mm -hmm. And what I told her was in my card was that I really have noticed a change in tone from the BC Liberals under her leadership. Mm. Like, I feel like she really took them out of the muck. Um, their question period questions were about issues. And sure, we might not agree with the, you know, the angle or the perspective that they're bringing, um, but it was about issues. Mm -hmm. Whereas under the previous leader, um, before Shirley Bond, question period was all about like gotcha questions. Mm. You know, they had filed like millions of dollars worth of FOIs in order to get a, a receipt on dry cleaning, and then for five hundred dollars, and like pounded um, Minister Mark over the head with it for weeks on end. Like it was just really petty stuff. Yeah. Um, and and this uh, the last couple of sessions under Shirley Bond has been like, you know what? They're asking some good questions. They're good questions that we can answer, but they're still good questions. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, there have been—I mean, not that I watch question period that often—but in 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 keeping up with BC politics, it sounds like there have been some very interesting and and I would say productive uh, question periods where I thought they were their line of questioning and the Greens, who I, I especially under Sonia First to know, I think have always been excellent, asking important questions that the British Columbians care about.
1: Yeah, I think that's important.
0: Yeah. So that's it. We're going to leave it on that note. But but you were the second last podcast of 2020. This year, 2021, you were the last podcast for the listeners who have made it this far. What do you have to say? The floor is open. Whatever message you'd like to throw out in the universe, it's all yours.
1: I guess really I want... Uh, to thank British Columbians for their resilience their patience their compassion over the last year it has not been easy for people I also want to thank people for uh, for reaching out with all of their kind words um, and well wishes for premier John Horgan Mm -hmm. who is going through cancer treatment he has been an incredible premier an incredible leader and it just breaks my heart to know that he is going through cancer yet again. He very rightly points out that he is uh, not the only person who has to live through an experience like this and that it happens all the time to people. Um, and it reminds us that uh, even premiers are human too. Mm-hmm. And it serves us all very well to, to be kind and compassionate to one another. Um British Columbians have been doing that in spades over the last 12 months, and I'm just so proud to serve
0: as an MLA here. I love that. Bowen, thank you so much. Thank you. Folks, that's our podcast. Of course, she is one of my favorites. She is the BC Minister of State for Infrastructure. She is Bowen Ma, and I am Moamir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. We'll okay, be